You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Today uh, is where we pick up. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, maybe you left it at home, maybe you don't have one, um, just put up your hand. Um, we would love to get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap in front of you. Um, I have nothing for you. This is, this is all I've got. And so we come to God's Word, and uh, we come together to see what the Lord has for us. So Genesis 4, verse 17 is where we're going to start. Um, continuing this morning in a really dark section of Scripture. I don't know if you've picked that up the last couple of weeks. Um, it's rough through here. We saw sin enter the world through Cain, or sorry, through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, resulting in their expulsion from that perfect paradise. And the beginnings of life outside the garden. How's this going to look in this brave new world? Well, first off, we have Cain and Abel. Cain being warned by God, still overtaken by the power of his own sin, reaches out and kills his brother. Not a great start. Not a great place to be. And yet, as we continue to move forward through chapter 4, it's, it's only getting worse. First, Humanity is kicked out of the garden, out of the presence of the Lord. Then Cain, in particular, because of his sin, is sent away, off to the east, away from the presence of the Lord, banished to a life of wandering. Verse 17 through 26, then, um, is following the, the family of Adam and Eve as it grows. The, the human family begins to multiply and, and expand um, and it gets darker before it gets lighter when we see these two distinct lines. And, and so first we're going to see the line of sin and then the line of faith. So let me, let me read um, verses 17 through 26. Um, follow along with me as I do. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujahel, Mahujahel fathered Methushahel, and Methushahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, humble us before your word. As we have prayed this morning, God, let there be confession and conviction of sin this morning. Would you work repentance in our hearts? We need it, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the darkness and the pain and the suffering caused by sin. Give us eyes to see your grace. That you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I um, endeavor to proclaim your word faithfully, Lord. I pray that um, the words of my mouth um, would be true to your word. God, if there's anything that I have prepared to say that is not from you, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But God, that your word would go forth, that your truth would be proclaimed. God, that you would be building your church uh, as we humble ourselves before you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, we see the line of sin, verses 17 through 24. The bulk of this passage, the remainder of the chapter here. Um, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, Somehow, this has become one of those supposed uh, gotcha moments. I don't know if you've had this before. Um, this is where the, the atheist would love to say, gotcha, stumped you. Where did Cain get his wife? It's impossible. How could we ever answer it? Um, man, just read the Bible. It's there. Um, where did Cain get his wife? Well, Genesis 5-4, Adam had other sons and daughters. There were more people. Um, they lived a long time. They obeyed the command of God. They were fruitful and they multiplied. And we hear about a few of those people, but there was a large family growing. And uh, yes, Cain married his sister. And so did Seth, most likely, um, as well as Adam's other sons. Um, But being so early in history, um, they would have had a much more diverse, much deeper gene pool, um, less corrupted genetics, and so not at all the concern that that is today. Um, But this brings us to the first point under the line of sin. Um, Cain has a son, Enoch, and and here we see that that sin makes us proud. It makes us proud. Cain has a son, Enoch, and he went out and built a city, and he names the city after his son. Now, the word city might be a little bit strong. Uh, That's a pretty broad term. Um, Really, it's just referring to any kind of established, fortified settlement. Um, Cain didn't go out and find 10,000 people and and build high-rises. He probably just put up a few buildings and they said, this is where we're going to be. This is our spot. Um, This seems to be an act of defiance, though. Cain is sent out. He's banished from the presence of the Lord uh, out to the east as a wanderer. And the first thing he does is builds a city. He says, "Uh uh-uh, this is where I'm going to be. And he names the city after his son. What's he doing? He's, he's laying claim to that city. This is my city. This is my kingdom. I am here and this is 
mine. Cain becomes the first functional atheist. He knows that God exists. He knows that um, that God has banished him to a life of wandering, and he's going to carry on living how he sees fit anyway. He's just going to do his thing as if God were not even there. This is the root of so much of, of the world that we live in today. A world that is set up um, by every individual um, as their own God, some claiming to believe in God, some claiming to believe that, that there is no God, but, but it's irrelevant as we all just live as if we are our own ultimate authority. I make the decisions. I call the shots. This is my life. As far as Western culture is concerned, uh, humanism is the order of the day. Humanism is a, a philosophical approach to life. Um, and, and according to the Humanist Society of the UK, it has three basic pr- principles of, of humanism there. This, trust in the scientific method and the rejection of the supernatural. Two is the, the ethical decisions are made based on reason, empathy, and concern for other humans. And three, um, the absence of the afterlife and any discernible purpose to the universe, human beings can give their own lives meaning by seeking happiness. So boil that down. Um, There is no God. Follow your heart. Live your best life now. That's it. That's that's all there is to do. And and some people would would quibble with, well, I believe there's a God, but, but what do they mean by that? Do they actually live in submission to that God? Um... This is exactly what Paul was warning about. Romans 1, 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. We took the glory of God and we replaced him with an image of ourselves. Because of sin, God cast Cain out of his presence and and continuing in sin, Cain returned the favor. The problem is, denying the existence of God does, does no more to affect his existence than denying the existence of trains as you walk down the tracks. This is pride. This is our sin. We close our eyes, we stop our ears, um, we pretend like God does not exist. And it's not just Cain who does it, nor is it just the humanists and the world around us. It's easy to throw stones out there, but that doesn't do us a whole lot of good. This happens in us, doesn't it? You finish your morning devotions, you close your Bible, You finish your prayer time, and then we go about our day as if God doesn't even exist. We go about our business in our own strength, building our own kingdom, our own little cities, building our career for our own glory, raising our children for our own glory. We we don't give another thought to the presence of God or the will of God or the glory of God. Something I've been wrestling with, trying to I'm trying to think on a lot over the last couple months. It's not easy. I'm trying to build in these just moments of prayer through my day. 
Moments of recognizing the, the presence of God. Moments of, uh, of reorienting my heart toward the, the kingdom of God. Because I can just get about my business. I've got my checklist, my to-do list, um, and, and I can just get my head down and go. So I'm just trying to stop. I've got like four to six great opportunities throughout the day when I'm you know, changing from one task to another, from one meeting to the next, um, stopping for lunch, that I can just pause and just take two minutes Two minutes and pray. Two minutes and recognize the, the presence of the Lord. How often are you taking time in your day? How often is your day saturated with an, with an understanding of, of the Lord's presence? Your dependence on Him. It's scary to think that through. Um, even simpler, just, just grabbing hold of a few simple phrases from Scripture that can just be uttered as a prayer in one breath, Right? Luke 2.42, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Ephesians 2.14, Jesus, you yourself are my peace. Psalm 73.26, oh God, you are my strength and my portion forever. I need that. I need those constant reminders. I need to be constantly reorienting my heart to see the bigger picture, to see the, the Lord at work, or I become that functional atheist, just going about my business. Sin makes us proud. Not only does sin make us proud, verses 18 and 19 show us our sin makes us perverted. Perverted. Look at, um, starting in verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Now, we have some pregnant mothers here. I know you got all excited as I read that. There's some great name possibilities, but, but this is the line of Cain. So just hold off. Wait for next week. Those, there's better options there. Um, but, but as we look more closely at this list of names, um, yeah, it's a genealogy. We're getting the, the family line of Cain. Verse 19, Moses slows down and just gives us a little bit more. He pauses and, and tells us a little more about Lamech. Fifth generation down from Cain, Lamech, we're told, took two wives. Here's another gotcha moment, right? Why does the Bible endorse polygamy? Your old dusty book endorses it. All of these so-called godly men have multiple wives. They probably wouldn't bring up Lamech as an example. Um, but there are others. There are plenty. What do we do with that? Simplest response is, this is narrative. This is history. And, and so not all of Scripture is God telling us what we should what, what should happen. Um, much of us is, is just telling us what did happen. And so just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God endorses it. Uh, and that's true of a lot of things. And actually, if you look a little bit closer, it's true there are a number of men with multiple wives, but not one of them. Not one single time does that go well for them, as you can imagine. It's always a bad thing. And it's always a bad thing because it's never God's design. This wasn't the plan. That's why it's here. That's why Lamech um, is in this line of Cain, this line of sin, and it's specifically noted he took 
two wives because it is distinctly contrasting against Genesis 1 and 2, God's good and perfect creation. That is God laying out what should happen. This is what the world should be like. Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Two becoming one. One man, one woman, for life, that's marriage. Simple as that. It's an easy definition. There's no variation. That's God's design, and sin makes us perverted. Now, just to be clear, perverted is not always sexual. It just means twisted, corrupted, right? We've, we've bent this thing out of its proper shape. Lamech, out of the line of sin, living in this city of man, ignoring God, deciding he's in control now, begins to twist and corrupt God's world, God's design, God's gifts. This is what sin does. It twists us. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and by that he means those who are far from God, those who don't know the Lord. And he says this is how they live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sin makes the mind futile. It doesn't work properly. It, it darkens the understanding. This, this separation from God creates in us an ignorance, an ignorance of what's right and true and good. And, and the result is running after all kinds of things that are, that are not God's plan, that are corrupting and perverting this world that he's put us in. The book of Judges ends with this phrase, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I find that a really curious phrase today. This is meant as a statement of judgment, of condemnation. This is the height of, of darkness in Israel. It was bad. How bad? It was so bad there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But I would bet you, if you went out onto the streets in Calgary today and said, what do you think about this? A world where there's no king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Great! That's like utopia, right? There is no ruler, there's no authority. Just everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone just living their truth. That's what we're after. It's perfect. It's good. Problem is, the human heart is infected by sin. We've been perverted, corrupted. It's deceitful and desperately sick. It's wicked and twisted. And so apart from God, it doesn't take long until Lamech takes two wives. We do what is right in our own eyes, and that's a bad thing. Over the years, all of a sudden, it's not just one man taking two wives. It's Men marrying men, women marrying women, men becoming women, and all manner of twisting and deforming of God's design. And again, let's not get too far looking out there. Um, this includes divorce. 
This includes sex outside of marriage. This includes pornography. It's all the same mess. It's all the same twisting. Sin perverts the mind. And we run into all kinds of things thinking, this is good and this is right. I can feel it in my heart. We've lost the anchor for our morality. It's like trying to to navigate using a compass when the North Pole has been removed. It, It just points whichever way you want it to point. You wander off in all kinds of ways. Of course, this is, this is north. I'm, I'm following my compass. Well, I think this is north. Well, you follow your compass, I'll follow mine. There is no anchor. There is no objective truth. We do what's right in our own eyes. We trust our own assessment of what is good, the feelings of our hearts, and, and our hearts are wrong. Our hearts and minds are darkened. This is is why David um, finds so much delight uh, in writing Psalm 119. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 119 and thought, this is weird. Like, this is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is one massive acrostic poem just talking about how wonderful God's law is. God, your law is like honey on my lips. It's delightful. It's the joy of my soul. You You don't hear people singing about good laws today. But he writes this, delighting in the law of God. 119.105, you, you know it, I'm sure. He says of God's word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. My heart is darkening. Your law gives me eyes to see where I need to go. It lights my way. It's, it's a north pole for my compass. We need that desperately because our hearts are dark, because we're corrupted by sin. We can't be trusted. It is an amazing, beautiful thing that God has given us his law. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Because that's what we need. We need to be taught. We need to be corrected. We need to be trained in what is right. Don't trust your heart. Don't don't hold so tightly to to your truth. We should be eager. We should be desperate to subject our thinking and our feelings to the trustworthy word of God. That's not where sin takes us. If we embrace sin, if we live in this line of Cain, sin makes us proud. Sin makes us perverted. And then sin makes us planted. Verses 20 to 22. Let me read this for us, and then I'll explain what I mean by that. Starting verse 20. Ada, that's Lamech's first wife, bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, the sister of Tubalcane, was Nama. Moses continues down this genealogy, telling the sons of Lamech, but, but with each son he stops, he gives us just a little bit of extra information. He's, he's letting us in on, on the development of the story here. And what we see is culture. Like this is, this is human culture beginning. Jabal's the father of those who dwell in tents and, and have 
livestock. Reuben, this is your guy. He's got his cows going. He's got his sheep going. Um, He's pioneered agrarian farming. This is economy starting. This is a business happening. Jubal, then, his brother, is the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Where's Roman? Here's your man. Um, These are the most basic musical instruments. He's invented music. this, This is the birth of the arts. Then comes Tubal Cain from, from Lamech's second wife. He's the forger of all instruments made of bronze and iron. I don't know if we have any metal workers. We need some, we need some iron workers here. Um, more specifically, instruments is a broad term. It could be tools or weapons. Um, this is technology. This is, this is the birth of technological advancement. And so you put this together, you have economy and the arts and technology. This is, this is culture. This is the world begun. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things. In fact, these are, these are right. These are God's good gifts to humanity. They're, they're, they're being obedient to God's command to, to be fruitful, multiply, to, to fill the earth and, and subdue it. These are gifts of the Lord that they're developing. The problem is not what they're developing, but they're developing these things apart from the Lord. The line of Cain is just getting more and more settled, planted, rooted. This is it. This is our world without God, and we're going to make it comfortable, and we're going we're to do our thing. We're going to build this city. Using the, the things of the world to try to find their, their meaning and their purpose and their identity in a world outside of the presence of the Lord. And so, for the people of God back then, as well as for the, the church today, um, we often benefit from those innovations, don't we? Uh, I mean, we live in a world with, with an economy and with, with art and, and with technology, and, and boy, we're using a lot of that right now. Abraham had vast herds of livestock to feed his family. David played the lyre to worship the Lord. You've probably at some point been helped by an x-ray that was invented by an unbeliever. These things are amoral in themselves. They are neither moral nor immoral. They're not good or bad. They're just there. And they can be used to the glory of God. They can be kept in their proper place and used to to serve the king and his kingdom. Or they can be used to replace God. They can become idols, things that we love, things that we trust in, things that we pour our lives into. Things that we love and trust and serve in only ways that we should, in ways that we should only love and trust and serve the Lord. Simpler than that, they can even just become distractions, right? They just cover the pain make us a little more comfortable, keep us a little more busy, keep us a little more distracted uh, as we bump our way through this broken world. Sin makes us plant ourselves in this world, focuses our eyes, our hearts on the, the, the present things, the things that are passing away. The things of this world are so tangible. They're right there. They're present. We get that. The world continually puts forward these amazing, tantalizing promises of of the good life. 
right? It looks so nice. I don't, it's going to be different for everybody. I don't know what comes to your mind. You think of the, the good life. I just wish I had just enough money that I didn't have to work. Or maybe it just could take you know, a few months off every year. Just to have a little bit bigger house. A little bit nicer truck. Maybe a house on the lake with a boat. That would be great. I just, I just wish I could go skiing every weekend. Whatever that is, there's this, this picture of the good life that's put up in front of us that's just chock full of these things of the world. And our hearts just latch onto that so quickly, so easily. At least mine does. But it's sin. It's the power of sin that, that locks my heart there, that keeps my, my eyes tied to the, the things of the dust. Jesus warns us, Luke 12, 15. He said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is longing for the things that you don't have. For, because, Jesus says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not the definition of life. That's not where you're going to find fullness of joy and happiness in life. It's not going to come in these things, so be on your guard. Jesus is assuming you're going to be sucked into that. You're going to have to fight against that. Again, he says, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's a stark warning. Gaining the whole world seems like that would be a pretty good thing. That would be rather profitable. That makes me richer than Elon Musk by a long ways. What good would it be if I forfeited my soul? We get so content in this world. We get so stuck in the rut. We're, we're happy not even to think about eternity. Man, wrestling through this this week, I'm just thankful the Lord did not give me riches. I really am. I don't know that I could handle it. I'm terrified. My heart would just get so comfortable here. I would just be able to distract myself enough. My heart is fickle enough that the things of this world, I could just keep grabbing more and, and forget about the things of the Lord. That's terrifying to me. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives advice on how to engage this world. How do, how do, we, how do we live here then? What do we do with this technology and the arts and, the, and economy um, and he's, he's no fool. He knows we, we live in this world, but, but listen to his advice. And I think if we look carefully, this is going to be just as convicting uh, for the people who have as the people who don't have. 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. he says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. We're, we're not here for long. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as if they had no goods. Those who deal with this world as if they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So use it. Engage in it. But not as if it's yours. Not as if it's eternal. Don't don't set your heart on it. Some are married, some are not. Some have money, some have none. Some rejoice, some mourn. But those things ought not to define us. We should not be planted in this world. 
We should get by in this world and, and use the things of this world, but, but at, at arm's length. One of the things that your heart is in danger of, of grasping onto just a little too much, your career, your reputation, your physique or your looks, your house or your, your comfort, your rights, your political views, your family. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, right? They're perfectly fine in their proper place, but, 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 but in our sin, we want to make them primary. We want to make them our, our identifying features. We want to wrap our life up in these things. And Jesus says, that's not your life. Your life is hidden in Christ with, or hidden with Christ in God. We should live with these things of the world in an open hand. Sin makes us proud. Sin makes us perverted. Sin makes us planted in this world. And then lastly, as we follow the line of sin, um, there's just no other way to say it than to return again. 23 and 24, sin makes us proud. It makes us proud. This is the crux of the passage. It's the the climax of the, the line of sin and it's pride. And so pride is both the first and the last stop on this train. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Descending from this line of pride, perverted in his view of the world and firmly planted in these temporal things, Lamech's pride reaches its climax. And it comes in the form of a song. He's not hiding this. He's bragging about it. He's writing music about it. And Lamech's response to this young man who struck him was to kill him. We don't know the details, um, some kind of argument, dispute. Um, Young man there refers to a man in his prime. This is someone under 40 who struck him. Uh, And again, his response is murder. And here again, we see the sin of pride fully grown. First, it's, it's the pride toward others. Pride towards others. He, he clearly sees himself uh, as the, the leading role in the movie of his life, right? Everyone else around him, his, his wives, his, his children, this, this young man, he sees them as existing uh, as secondary characters for his benefit. It's all about him. He's the center of his own world. And so when this young man dares to strike Lamech, he feels absolutely justified to, to respond with lethal force. You wonder why um, Moses later in his law code says a, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and people say, well, that's so barbaric. No, it isn't. It, it's this. If someone dents your car, you, you don't get to blow up their house. It's equal justice is what it's saying, justice that fits the crime. Of course, the Bible also preaches grace, forgiveness. Interesting, Jesus responds to Peter saying, how many, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven. Interesting. He's pointing back here. He's contrasting against Lamech who had no forgiveness. No, he's going to overdo justice and turn it into injustice 
walking down the road of sin. Lamech has such a small view of his world. It's like he's standing on a pitch black stage with a spotlight on himself. And the only things that matter in his world are the things that come and go from that spotlight. And so when this young man comes into his spotlight and and offends him, uh, he has no grace. There's no reason to forgive. He is fully vindicated, not just in seeking justice, but in actually putting him to death. In his pride of sin, Lamech's view of, of the value of human life is is reduced to how it affects me, right? He's so blinded by sin and pride, he, he, he doesn't just carry out murder, he writes a song about it, he, he brags about it. The pride of Lamech is so alive and well in our day. I don't know if you've noticed this. Many of the abortion advocates today, um, they've given up, by and large, on the argument of whether or not it's a baby in the womb. That's really no longer a conversation. We used to operate under the assumption that we could just convince people that this is a, a, a baby. If that's a, a life in there, then obviously we would, we would all presume that life is good, that life has to be protected, that life has value. And that's just no longer the case. There are many who would just openly admit, yes, it's a life. Yes, it's a baby. We see that, but the value of that life is only measured within the spotlight of the mother's life. The value of that life is determined only by how it enriches or inconveniences the mother or how it enriches or inconveniences our society. There's no acknowledgement of the sanctity of life, the inherent human value and and dignity that exists in in every human life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that our country is now not only in support of taking inconvenient human or infant life, but also inconvenient adult life. Because we don't understand. We have so distanced ourselves from God. We've become so ignorant and darkened in our thinking. We've forgotten that man was created in the image of God. And so we allow, even encourage euthanasia for a wide variety of reasons. And and sure, um, this point is, um, you might make the point that it's voluntary for these people. But why is this okay? Why is this acceptable? Well, because those people are a drain on society. Those people are an inconvenience to us. It would be easier just to have them gone. We don't see the inherent value of life because of the pride of our sin. And again, it's obvious in its extreme forms, and it's much more fun to throw rocks out there, um, but let's not miss its subtle forms in ourselves. How do you value the people around you? You come to church. Is it so that everyone can serve me and pour into me? Are there people in your life that you interact with through this lens? They're a drain on you. In pride, you see interacting with them as a, as a net loss. It's a sacrifice. You have your, your time and your emotional energy, and, and I know you haven't murdered them, but you sure would prefer to just ignore them, dismiss them. By what measure 
do we judge the value of life, the value of community? Sin makes us proud toward one another. We also see in Lamech that sin makes us proud toward God. And, and this ought to be the most terrifying. Um, Lamech, in, in singing this song, is celebrating his sin, right? He's rejoicing in it. If God promised to protect Cain with the threat of sevenfold vengeance, then surely God would protect Lamech with 77-fold. He, he actually reaches back and quotes God in defense of his own sin. Like this is the, the height of arrogance. He comes so far in his pride, his ignorance of God and his opposition to God that, that he comes full circle, really seeming to believe that God is on his side in this. He's demanding God's defense. He's come so far from God that now he simply has created a new God. A God who only truly exists in his own mind. It's a God that he has imagined. He just happens to believe the things that he believes and value the things that he values. It's convenient. There's a movement in the early 1900s, part of kind of the turn of the century liberalism. Um, it's called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. And these people set out, these supposed scholars, to, to kind of disentangle the real Jesus from all the myth of the New Testament and all that and figure out who Jesus really was. And uh, one scholar from the outside pointed out um, that one by one, these men looked for Jesus down the deep well of history and all they ever saw at the bottom was a reflection of themselves. That's the height of pride. The height of our separation from God is the recreation of God made in our own image. We begin to say things like, well, my God would never dot, dot, dot. The God I believe in would always dot, dot, dot. We're a little more secular-minded. We just replace the concept of God with the concept of truth, right? I need to speak my truth. I need to live according to my truth, not the truth, but my truth. And we're perfectly comfortable with this, this ultimate authority as long as that ultimate authority just happens to endorse everything that I endorse. We don't want to admit it, but we've made ourselves God's. Listen, if your God never contradicts you, if your God never confronts you, if your God never convicts you and challenges you and changes you, then that's all he is. He is simply your God. And that's not the God. You need to be warned because the God exists and the God has spoken and he's spoken in his word. And it's trustworthy and it's true and it's clear and he has clearly said in that word James 4 6 that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble those are pretty benign words but think about that again God opposes the proud you want to be in opposition to the the creator God of the universe that's not a good place to be there is one God and you're not him you were created in his image. He will not be recreated in yours. Our sin makes us perverted. It makes us planted in this world. It makes us proud in the face of God. 
And God opposes the proud. As you're reading through Genesis, you'll notice the line of Cain ends here. That's it. We never hear about them again. After the birth of Lamech, the Bible says nothing more of this wicked lineage. Sure, they made some contributions to culture, but in the end, they are dead and gone and forgotten. Worse, we're left with the clear implication that they are forever separated from the presence of God. To be blunt, they are in hell. This is where the pride of sin inevitably leads. Opposition to God. And so often, as it did in Lamech, it leads us with a confident hope on our way. So tragic. It's so deceitful and deadly and destructive and damning. And that's why this last section of the chapter is so filled with hope, so needed. We have this one little breath of air out of the darkness. Verses 25 and 26, the contrast to the line of sin, it's the line of faith, the descendants of Seth. Just two verses, 25 and 26, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, For God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so Seth also, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. Clear parallels here, the, the last section of the chapter to the first section of the chapter. Chapter 4 began with great hope, great anticipation. Eve had born a son, and she calls his name Cain, and, and, she's, and she sings out, I've, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and there's this great hope that maybe this is the rescuer, this is the, the redeemer, and tragically Cain succumbs to his own sin, murders his brother, and this line of exiled rebels comes out of it. Here it echoes from verse 1, suggesting this, this renewed hope. This is a fresh start. He's called another offspring. Again, that's, that's looking back to that language from Genesis 3.15. The promise of an offspring, a seed of the woman, uh, a rescuer that would come who would destroy the power of sin and death. And so this new line um, is, is born from which God's salvation can still come. There's still a hope. And in this new line, first we see a new humility. This is the grace of God. Eve attributes the gift of this son completely to the Lord. He is, he is given by God. And where Cain then had a son and named him Enoch and dedicated a city to his son as this statement of his strength, um, Seth also has a son and calls his name Enosh. Enosh simply means man, but it emphasizes the, the frailty of man, the weakness of man. And then comes this amazing phrase, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. Cain in exile out of his unbreakable spirit stands in strength opposing God. Enosh in his weakness humbles himself before the Lord. He began to call out on the name of the Lord. Cain was sent away from the presence of the Lord. And he persisted in that, rejecting God and his ways. 
serving himself, creating his own world. Seth, also born of Adam, also born in sin. But rather than leaning into that sin and opposing God, he humbles himself before God. The line of Seth is calling out in submission to Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Of course, the name says so much more than just a title. Um, Hebrew thought your, your name, like we would kind of say today, some, somebody's good name, it's their reputation, it's their character, it's, it's who they are. They're not coming up with a, with a new God. They are crying out for the, the true God, humbled before him. And where Cain storms away, Seth draws near. This new humility produces then a new legacy. The descendants of Cain are the ones who produced culture, economy, arts, technology. That's their, that's their legacy. That's what's left behind. That's who they were. The descendants of Cain are those who called on the name of the Lord. Sure, they kept livestock to feed their families. They played music and engaged in the arts. They used uh, and probably developed technology, but that is not what defined them. They didn't settle here. This was not their home. Their life did not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Their life, their hope was in the Lord. And where the record of the line of Cain ends at Lamech, the, the legacy of Seth runs through the rest of Genesis, through the rest of Scripture. It's obvious, as we read, not everyone in the line of Cain called on the name of the Lord. Um, it's not far from here to the flood. And yet, we see that th- that line of faith can be traced from, from Seth to Enosh, through Noah, and to each of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Each of them are said to, to call on the name of the Lord. So Cain built this city rooted in this world. Hebrews 11.10 says this of Jacob, that he was looking for a very different city. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13 to 16 goes on to say this of, of all the patriarchs. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are not, sorry, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He crushed the line of Cain who who built their city here, who rooted their lives here, and he provides a better city, a heavenly city for those who call on his name. And he's made a way. The way for, for sinners like you and like me to be brought into that city, to be reconciled to God. The Lord would, as he promised, send his deliverer. More precisely, the Lord himself would come as that deliverer in the person of Jesus Christ. Dying on the cross, he would pay the price. He would cover the punishment of sin for all those who would what? 
call on his name. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All those who would come in humility and repentance before him, who would, who would abandon this world with its twisted and sinful ways, who would turn away from the city of man and say, I don't belong here. This isn't my life. Set their hearts on the city of God. The city whose designer and builder is God. Think of the thief who hung on the cross beside Jesus. Used his dying breath to call out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did he hear back from Jesus? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What hope for sinners there. What a gracious God. Where does your hope lie? Are you living in the city of Cain? Is that your world? Are you living in rebellion against God? Doing what is right in your own eyes? Building your own life in the here and now? Making, making sure this life counts? Planting yourself, um, planting yourself in, in, in the world here and now? Maybe even sincerely believing that God is on your side, that you are doing what is right and good, that you are honoring God in it. But that God that you're honoring looks a lot more like you than he looks like the God of the Bible. Or have you the line of Seth? Are you among those who, by the grace of God, who have come to recognize your frailty, your brokenness? your sinfulness, your need for a rescuer and have called out on the name of the Lord, God, save me. I need rescue. We're going to close celebrating communion together this morning. So I invite Roman um, to come. Caleb, come and and lead us. Um, Communion is just that. It is calling on the name of the Lord. It's saying over and over again every time as we partake together, um, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. This is not my home. This is not my city. I am looking forward to a better city. We proclaim his death until he comes because that's our life. That's our home. And so if that's not you this morning, I would encourage you just to not partake. Just observe and consider. Consider who this God is. Consider your sinfulness. Oh, that you would have the humility to see that your own heart can lie to you and deceive you. That there is truth found in one place. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life.